0: Okay, so folks, we're in lesson 11 today, and it's called the woes. Now, woe is um, not very much in our language, okay? Um, it, is, it was a part of language for a long time. Uh, woe means great distress or sorrow. And as soon as I saw the word woe in our text, my mind went back to the great when TV was worth watching, Okay? And how many of you remember Hee Haw? Okay? And they had a little segment, Woe is Me, okay? In fact, here's the words gloom, despair, agony on me, deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. And I thought, that's a pretty good definition of woe, okay? And uh, if, if, for those of you who are young and you have no clue what we're talking about, uh, just go to YouTube and look up Woe is Me and you will see what we're talking about. And that was a highlight every weekend on Hee Haw when we watched it. So, um, woe, woe is really, really going to express a lot of problems for Israel and what's coming for them, and it's not, there's no way to sugarcoat it, okay? So what I want you to see is what he's going to pronounce here, yes, there's gonna be some implication for those who are not his children, but these are the woes that are pronounced for those who call themselves God's children, the Northern Kingdom, Jerusalem, Judah, and it, it really is going to express God's chastisement of his people, okay? And it's not going to be a great thing. So we're going to look at chapter 28 through chapter 33, okay? Chapter 28 through chapter 33. Next week, we will do uh, the next portion of Scripture up until about the midpoint of Isaiah, and then that's all about the Assyrian crisis. This is about Assyria. And so we're going to talk today about God's woe to... First of all, in chapter 28, it's going to be a woe to Ephraim and to, to Judah. Now, those are two tribes. Ephraim, though, is kind of the word that's often used to refer to the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. And so he's going to pronounce a woe, first of all, to Ephraim. And we see that in the first 13 verses. So here's, here's what I want you to notice what it says here. Um Scotty or Laurie, somebody can you give me the blue circle when you gave me back? Oh, Hudson's up there. Okay. Sorry, Hudson's got it. Okay. Thank you, Hudson. All right. Here's the first one. Doom is pronounced on the northern kingdom, which is described as a drunkard. So the northern kingdom is described as a drunk. Okay. Uh, now we understand that, right? We understand have you ever been around an alcoholic? I, 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 I have, you know what I'm saying? And you look at an alcoholic, they are totally enslaved to what? Their, their addiction. Could be a drug addict or something. So he's kind of likening the Northern Kingdom to somebody who's addicted to their sinful behavior, to a drunkard, okay? So the Northern Kingdom will be trampled underfoot by the Mighty One. So woe to... The northern kingdom to Ephraim because you know you're like a drunk and you're going to be trampled underfoot by the mighty one now the mighty one here of course is God but the tool that he uses is the Assyrian empire okay so they're going to be trampled underfoot now let me just stop for a moment when Isaiah is making this proclamation the prophets in the northern kingdom most of them and we're going to see this later on if we look at Jeremiah. The prophets have a tendency to say, oh, God's going to be with us. We're going to get through this. He's going to save us. But here comes Isaiah. He comes along and says, no, whoa, distress, sorrow. You're like drunks addicted to your sinful behavior. God's going to trample you underfoot. There isn't going to be good. It isn't going to be good. Now, there's something there to be learned, okay? Meaning, we really have to be careful what we listen to. Even in Christendom. Because sometimes, the messages that are conveyed are not necessarily God's message. So there were prophets in this time who were saying, everything's going to be okay, you know what I'm saying? You're going to withstand the Assyrians. Everything's going to be okay. But yet the prophet of God says, no, 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 Woe, Great distress. Gloom. Despair. Agony. And so the northern kingdom will be trampled underfoot by this mighty one. Here's what says: The Lord will be a glory and a beauty to the remnant that turn from their pride. So in the midst of this to this, of this problem that's going to happen, this devastation to the northern kingdom, God says those who turn from their pride, the Lord's going to be a glory to them. Okay? The Lord's going to be a glory to them. Now let's stop for a moment. Let me explain what I want you to see with that. Okay? Have you noticed, it's, it's, it's especially in our social media-driven world that we live in now, every time some calamity happens, there are people who will immediately blame God. Have you ever, ever, ever watched that on the news or, or, or seen that on Facebook or something? Like, how could God let this happen? Okay, okay. That's the same thing that's going to happen in this time. Because because remember, they're putting their trust in God. Everything's going to be okay. Got these prophets telling them that everything's going to be okay. Although God's been telling them, no, it's not going to be okay. Here comes the calamity. The people who were, quote, trusting in a false message, had a false view of God, they're going to be devastated. They're going to be like, where are you, God? You, you did wrong. But Isaiah is saying, but to the remnant. The remnant who turned from their self-pride. Who humbled themselves will will see God in a glorious way. Do do you understand what I'm saying? They will turn to God. And see, this is the thing about all devastation. All problems, even in our own lives. When you go through a crisis, it's going to do one of two things with you. It's either going to draw you away from God or it's going to draw you to God. Do, Do you understand what I'm saying? It's either going to draw you away from him or it's going to draw you to him. And what he says is, is this remnant, this few who are left, they're going to turn to the Lord. And they'll see his glory. You know, there'll be those who will turn away. I'm out of here. I'm done. But there will be those who will turn away. Now, here's what he says. The leaders were like. The leaders were drunkards who would not listen to the word of The prophet. Like a drunk who would not listen to the word of a prophet. You know, a drunk, have have you, this is personal to me. When you have somebody who's in addiction, family will look and say, you need to stop this behavior. You need to quit. And and, you know, they'll say, oh yeah, I, I can stop anytime or whatever. But guess what? They keep going back to it. And he's likening the leaders in Israel, the northern kingdom, to being drunks who refuse to listen. To the voice of reason in their life who are saying, quit doing this. And guess what? They're going to continue on. They're going to continue on. So he's using an illustration here that we understand. That we can recognize. He then moves on in verses 14 through 29, and he's going to pronounce a woe on Judah now, the southern kingdom, okay? The leaders of Judah trusted other gods to deliver them from the coming invasion. So the southern kingdom was a little bit more oriented to the Lord than the northern kingdom. In fact, the righteous in the northern kingdom, at one point, we saw this in in the narratives, the historical narratives of 1st and 2nd Kings, they left the northern kingdom and came down to the southern kingdom because they were serving the Lord more than the northern kingdom. Well, now he's saying to the southern kingdom, hey, your leaders are trusting in other gods than me. And that's true. Ahaz, remember Ahaz? That was to whom the prophecy was given in Isaiah chapter 7 about the child who would be born and called Emmanuel, Ahaz went to the Assyrian kingdom and got the dimensions of their God and sent it back to Jerusalem to have it built and put in the temple. Because he thought the Assyrian God was greater than his own God. And so Isaiah now is saying that they're trusting other gods to deliver them. These leaders are trusting other gods to deliver them from the, from the coming invasion. But here's what Isaiah will tell them. The Lord will set a cornerstone, the Messiah, in Jerusalem. The Lord will set a cornerstone, the Messiah, in Jerusalem. Now, all right, so let's, let's ask a question here. Somebody give me an answer. The Gospels will refer to Jesus as what? He's the what? the chief? Anybody know? The, who said that? Yeah, cornerstone. that's right, Randy. The, the cornerstone, which is something out of the Old Testament, Isaiah talks about it, he refers to Jesus as being the cornerstone, but then he goes one step further in the Gospels and tells us that it was a, he was a stumbling block to who? The Jewish leaders. Did you understand what I'm saying? Because they couldn't grasp him. All right? Well, here Isaiah is telling us, yeah, you guys are trusting in other gods, but there's coming a cornerstone. There's coming a Messiah, the true king. Okay? Now, let's go on. Their agreements for deliverance would prove to be worthless. Now, here's what they did. All nations do this. We do this to this day. I mean, it's in the news today. When you look in the news today, how many of you seen in the news that there are some countries around Europe that are not a part of NATO? They want to join NATO now, right? Those are agreements, alliances being formed. In this day, there's this big bad dude on the corner who's coming and taking over everything, Assyria. Judah is concerned, so guess what they want to do? They want to form alliances, And so the prophet says their agreements for deliverance will prove worthless. God's saying to them, your alliances that you're going to try to achieve, they're meaningless. Your efforts are meaningless, okay? Why? Using the example of farming, God's judgment will only be for a short time. So when you look there, he's going to give the example of farming. But he's going to say, hey, when it comes, it's only going to be for a short time. All right? A short time. Now, talking about Jerusalem now. We're into chapter 29. Here's what he says. The prophet proclaims that the city will be besieged and humiliated. Now, besieged means they'll be totally surrounded. Nobody can get in. There'll be warriors on the outside trying to get in. They will be starved out. They'll be humiliated. But again, remember now, this is how the prophet works. God conveys, he's going to talk about judgment, but then he also holds out hope. What kind of hope is he going to give them now? A future deliverance. He says this, their enemies will be like dust and chaff, which suddenly disappears. Now, in just a few chapters, can I tell you Here's what you're going to see happen. The Assyrian Empire shows up around Jerusalem, besieges it. And then in one night, they'll disappear. Something happens that all of a sudden they panic, and they're out of there. And here it is, we're in chapter 29, Isaiah is saying, you're going to be humiliated, we're going to see that, there's going to be humiliation you're going to be besieged, but guess what? They're going to be like chaff and dust, which what? Will suddenly disappear. You know what I'm saying? Suddenly disappear. God's going to do this. All right. Now, the threat from the multitude of nations will vanish like a dream. So again, it's going to disappear. It's going to be gone. All right. So... Their spiritual blindness is a judgment from God. He says that their spiritual blindness is a judgment from God. Okay, so let's take some time to talk about this today. Maybe that's hard for you to grasp, but it's something that we need to wrestle with this morning. So would everybody agree? Okay, we're here this morning, and we're going to celebrate Easter. Okay, typically what is this is pretty much known among pastors there are two great days in christendom in the calendar one is christmas eve and the other is easter christmas eve tends to be one of the most attended services in christendom because why you'll have all the community come to your christmas eve candlelight service or whatever And and the reason why they come is so that they can be a part of tradition. It's a, a wonderful tradition to be a part of. Now, most people think, well, that'll be the way it is on Easter. Actually, it's not. Easter will maybe have a big, good crowd, and we'll have a good number of people here today because it's Easter, but they tend to be the believers who show up to worship. The community doesn't necessarily come. And that's because for them... Easter is, what's Easter to a lot of people today? Easter bunny. Think about this. Ham dinner. Egg hunts. I always think it's interesting we have ham on Easter. We're celebrating the resurrection of the Jewish Messiah and we're eating pork. Okay? Isn't that funny? Okay, if you think about that. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to change that. I love ham, okay, with dark gravy on potatoes, okay? Don't change that. All right. Now, for the most part, most people, beyond the Easter Bunny and the Easter eggs and the Cadbury eggs and the chocolate and the reduced chocolate tomorrow at Walmart that everybody's going to hit to buy more and more bags of, okay, um, what do most people think about Easter? Easter? Is it an earth-shattering event for them? Bruce is saying no. How many of you agree with Bruce? No, it really isn't. Just another holiday, right? Okay. Why? For us, it's, it should mean something wonderful, right? Why? why? What is it that, why can't they see it? What's going on here? Okay, they're blind. Spiritually blind. I can't see it. Now here's what the prophet is saying in in chapter 29. He's saying that spiritual blindness is a form of judgment. Yeah, Gene just said, wow. We don't normally think of it that way, but in a way, people not being able to see is judgment. Did you understand what I'm saying? It's God's judgment on them. Okay, so let's get some feedback. I just made these statements. You're probably sitting there saying, Gene just said, wow. Uh, what are you thinking? How do you feel about that, Lori? Okay, I would say, because I just had somebody ask me this question this last week. When people appear before Christ to be judged in the great white throne judgment, okay, the books are open and they are judged according to their deeds, and then they are judged, they're cast into the lake of fire, whether or not their names are written in the book of life. The implication of the text is, is that each person is responsible for themselves. So what comes first Is their choice. Okay? Now, when they choose to do their own thing, Romans chapter 1 talks about that God gave them over. Have you heard that statement, God gave them over? It's used multiple times of being given over to their own desires. Do you understand? To their own lusts, to what they want out of life. Okay, yes, Lori. I, I wouldn't use quenching the spirit, quenching the spirit is the spirit is within us. it talks about us quenching the work of the spirit in our lives as believers. I would say though yes, it's searing the conscience it is uh warping themselves. Did you understand what i 'm saying they They warp themselves by their choices so for instance we we kind of know that through through biology a little bit so Okay, when somebody becomes addicted to a drug, why are they addicted to a drug? Is it just a mental issue? No, well, it's a physical issue as well, right? Because their body now craves that, craves that drug. So, for instance, we've through the years we've talked talk, talk with people who have been addicted to heroin. And one of the ways they get off of heroin is by going on another drug to lessen what? The cravings of their body did you understand what i'm saying and hopefully that would get them to the place of overcoming that addiction and and so that that's what we see happening is there's something that changes with them did you, you understand what i'm saying when you look at romans chapter one well let's look there Tur- turn in your bibles to romans one let me tell you explain this this is the condemnation of gentiles by the way who's gentiles yeah, it's us, okay? So let's talk about us. Romans chapter 1. There's, there's a pattern here. And, and see if you see the pattern when I go through it with you, okay? There's a greater implication. You may not like the implication, okay? Okay? All right, verse 18. For the wrath of God... All right, now everybody understand what the wrath of God is, right? That's his judgment, his righteous judgment. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Okay, first thing they're doing... What are they doing? They're suppressing the truth. Now here's how they suppress it, okay? Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for it is shown to them. So what they know that there's a God. Everybody knows there's a God. Inside, you have this sense there's a God. Now you may not know all the theological details about him, but you know that there's something other, okay? That's what Paul is saying here. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even this eternal power and Godhead, so that they, were, that they are without excuse. Yeah, I, that makes sense to me, because like, when I go hunting, I sit around and I say, wow, this came from the Big Bang. When I'm sitting in the tree stand and that, that blue jay is bothering me, you know what I'm saying? and just chirping letting everyone know that I'm there you know or that squirrel you know and or and there's the deer wow isn't that wow wow from scum and water amino acids coming together here no i look at that and i say wow god this is beautiful it is amazing that you could create this do, do you know what i'm saying You could create this. He's saying you could tell by your internal sense, but also by, but here's what they do. Look with me. Verse 21, because they, although they knew God and did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. They chose to quit worshiping God and do their own thing. Professing to be wise, they became what? Fools. Haven't you noticed that? It doesn't even have to be about spiritual things. Sometimes the biggest eggheads are the dumbest, aren't they? Do you know what I'm saying? This is what he's saying. So professing to be wise because they got it all figured out, you know, that's what's happening here. Now let's go on. And change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and forfeited animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness, to the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among them, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what was against nature. And likewise, men leaving the natural use of a woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which is due. All right, so let me just stop. So we we know where it's going here, what it's saying. Typically, people will look at this passage and they will say, here, it's very clear, it's condemning this one sin. Yeah, it is, but it's also telling you how we got there. It's telling that Gentiles always drift to this point. Why? Because they reject God in their lives. Do you understand? So when you look at the culture around us and you're like, I can't believe we're at this point, we're doing this, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I can believe we're here. Paul said this would happen. When a culture, when a people do everything based on their own knowledge... And exchange of the knowledge of the true God for what they want to believe. What's happening around us is happening. And notice in the passage when he says he gives them over. He gave them over. That's a statement of judgment. He, he's judging them. So that gets back. So spiritual blindness is what? A judgment. You choose. You want to do your own thing? Fine. Go right ahead. That's the point he's making here. And he's saying this to to Judah and to Jerusalem. You're going to be humiliated, but don't worry. But I also need to point out to you that spiritual blindness is a judgment from God. When you can't see, that's a judgment. Okay? When you can't see, that's a judgment. Let's go on. First of all, I've got to stop. I'd be remiss if I didn't give somebody an opportunity to say something. Anybody got a question or a concern? You're wrestling. Yeah, Bruce. Just while you were talking there, I thought thought no hope. And I that present, who are present, can change people. Yes, he can change people, yes. And to be honest with you, if you look back at history, there have been other periods in a, first of all, can, we, can everybody realize that American history isn't perfect? Okay. Not everybody who came over from the boat from England was a pilgrim. Those who went to Jamestown and founded the colony at what would become Virginia were there looking for gold and timber, not religious freedom. The people who ended up in Georgia were there as a penal colony. They sent their prisoners to the prison in Georgia, knowing that they would never come back. So, we need to understand that. Yes, and and Plymouth Rock, yes, okay. But that's not all of America. And throughout history, there have been times, and I'm, I'm only recording what other church leaders from the past have recorded. They have said there have been times when the culture was so bad. This is not the first time we've been here. But you know what turned it around? The church recognizing how bad it is and dealing with itself first. That's what the revivals of the old days were. It was the church getting right with God. Not quote the country because when the church gets right then that has implications for the community around it. Do you you understand what I'm saying? That's really how we should be praying. is for God. We're not right. Okay? We're not right. So I don't know if that, if that's making your point there, maybe I'm not. You kind of look, I feel like I'm not. Go ahead, just you shake your head, no, tell me. Yes, prayer does change things. Yes. I just had a conversation with somebody this week talking about prayer, praying for the lost, okay? And because they said, we're, we're doing all, the, the guy said to me, I'm doing everything, I'm sharing, I'm whatever, and they're just not saying, what more can I do? Well, I took him to 2 Corinthians chapter four where it says the God of this world has blinded them. So I said, what you can do is pray. What do you mean pray? A simple prayer. God opened their eyes. We don't make intercession. Yeah, that's exactly right. If we don't make intercession for them, who will? Yeah, so open their eyes, Lord. Use me in my as I am, but open their eyes. You know what I'm saying? Open, open their eyes. So yeah, we have to pray. Yeah. Anybody else with a thought or comment? All right, let's go on here. Their worship was meaningless since it was not from their hearts. Okay, I want, let's let's kind of get a real true definition of what worship is, okay? Worship is not music. Worship is the outflow of your heart. Did you understand what I'm saying? It's not music. So through the years I've heard people, oh, I, I really can't worship their, you know, I can't. It, it, their music is terrible. Yeah, I've been in some churches. I remember when Lori and I, when we first got married, I preached in some little churches over in Indiana County. And it was a Christmas service in this little bitty Baptist church. And uh, the lady played the Christmas carols with one hand. One hand. And, it, and she didn't play it well. Did you know what I'm saying? And, but yet those people sang... From their what? Hearts. That's really what the issue is. It isn't how well the person is with the instrument, right? It's not even how well the person is who's singing. Boy, there's a hope for me, isn't there, with that statement, okay? It's, it's really the heart. And so here's what he's saying. The worship of God's people in Jerusalem was meaningless because what? It wasn't from their heart. It was from what? ritual. Do we not do that? Okay. Do we not show up because that's what we're supposed to do? You know, I, I I was just talking to somebody this week about it. You know, a lot of times you this is this is a sad. Don't don't look down on me. You know, you you pray at your meal, eat three bites, and then I look up at Lori and I, did we pray? She'll say yes. I forgot that I prayed. After three bites. What, what's going on there? Not from the heart. Ritual. Did you understand what I'm saying? You can think about that with others. We've, we do that, don't we? Okay? So here, here he is this coming judgment. The fact is that their worship is meaningless. Here, here's what it is. Here's the other thing those who think their actions are hidden from God will be judged we really do deceive ourselves. We really think that nobody sees what we're doing, but we forget there is one who does. Right? There's one who sees everything. In fact, as a believer, you know, I I often hear it said, well, God sees everything. Yeah, but let's take it one step further, okay? So let's let's try to help everybody understand, okay? Would everybody agree that when you came to Christ at that moment, that instant of you putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you being saved, you being justified, you being set on a course for ultimate glorification with Christ when you go to be with him— at that moment, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit entered into your life. Do we all agree with that? Everybody agrees with that? Now let me ask you a question. Does the Holy Spirit leave you? No, I'm mean, going agree with Bruce. Holy Spirit doesn't leave you. So when you are engaged in sin, it isn't just that God sees you He's with you. Now we don't talk like that, but that's the reality, right? So he's not removed from us, and he's saying to the people, you think your actions are hidden from me, but but they're not. I'm going to judge. I was there. I've seen it. You know, we, we live in a world of secrets and God sees. You think your actions are hidden, but they're not. Here's what else he says. In a coming time, the blind and the deaf will have healing as the wicked are cut off. Now, this would mean something to them at that time. It's a little bit different in our culture. We we try not to ostracize those who are disabled. That is really looked down upon in our society. However, in their society at the time, If you were blind or deaf, the thought would be, somebody sinned. The reason why this one, you're blind or you're deaf, is because God is judging you. They would view that person as being judged by God. And, And so they would be basically left to the outsides of society. They would be forgotten. They would have to beg and and, and rely on others to take care of them. Now, he's saying to them, there's going to be a time when the blind, the very bottom of the heap of humanity in the Jewish mind at that time, the blind and the deaf, they're going to be healed. But the wicked, they're going to be cut off. They're not going to have any part in this. Do you you understand what I'm saying? Because that's total opposite of what they're thinking. They're thinking the blind and the the deaf, they have been cut off. No, no, they're going to be healed. But the others are going to be cut off. All right, now let's go on. Oh, by the way, remember I told you when we were going through John? Nowhere in the Old Testament does it record a, a recording. An incident of of a blind person being made to see. Remember I told you that? But in the future, Isaiah tells us what? The Messiah will hear. And we see that here in this passage. That the blind will see. Okay? Now let's go on. Judah will no longer be ashamed and humiliated. That's what's going to happen in the future. We're going to talk about that today in the morning message as well because of the cross. Because of the resurrection of Jesus. All right, so then we come to chapter 30. We've got five minutes left, so I'm going to do a, I'm just going to go through this third section. I want you to notice with me obstinate children. You know what obstinate children are? Children who don't listen. Nobody's ever had that problem, right? Okay. All right, so here we go. All right, obstinate children. First of all, Doom is pronounced on those who seek help in Egypt without consulting the Lord. So here they are, they got this big Assyrian army coming from them. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Here's the people of God. Oh, we're going to go talk to Egypt. We're going to get help from them. It never entered into their mind to get it from God. They wanted to go to Egypt, okay? Go to Egypt. Well, Isaiah proclaims that Egypt can do nothing to help Judah. Go right ahead. (laughs) They're not going to be able to help you. God has to have a sense of humor with people, doesn't he? I mean, he tells them, don't even bother going there. Why are you talking to them? They're not going to be able to help you. But guess what? They go and do it. They're like, it's kind of like children. When you tell them, don't do that. This is going to happen. And they're like, I know better. And they go off. And what you said was going to happen, happens. Okay, let's go on. Isaiah is to write down the oracle as a future witness against Judah. So he's supposed to write down this oracle as a witness against them. Why? Because he's going to say, I told you. I told you that these things would happen, but you had to do it your way. Judgment will come on them as they rejected trusting the Lord. You know, sometimes we we uh, we wrestle with the question: How much do I do on my own? You know, uh, we we feel that you know you know there is a saying that's not from the Bible: God helps those who help themselves. And there is a sense in which we can find principles of that in the scripture that you and I are supposed to do something. But always, always in the scripture, in spite of our efforts, we are told to what? Trust God. Go to him. Here we see they're doing it on their own, but they're rejecting trusting the Lord. So they're at a point where they're doing it all on their own. We're going to make these alliances. We're going to protect ourselves by forming an alliance with Egypt. But they're rejecting trusting God. And so by rejecting trusting God, guess what they bring on themselves? Judgment. Okay? Judgment. All right, let's let's go on. Here we go. The Lord will wait to be gracious to them. God wants to be gracious to them, but he'll wait. He'll wait as they endure what they have to endure. Israel will return to the Lord and be faithful to him. So again, he's projecting what's going to happen in the future. Israel's going to turn back to God, and he's going to be faithful to him. Blessing will flow in the coming time of the millennium. Can I I be just very truthful with you for a moment? I know that a lot of times we look with hope to, well, in a democracy especially, to the next election to bring in the right people who are going to bring what we need. Okay? And there's nothing wrong with that. All right? However, don't put all your eggs there. Because they're human. Don't put all your eggs there because they're human. Where do I put my eggs? To the time that's coming. That's where my hope is. Nobody else has that hope. We have that hope. What's the hope? That what we want the time of perfect peace, the time of perfect justice, the time of everything being made right, no sickness, no death, I can go out and play with snakes and not get bit. I can lay down with a lion and pet it like a big giant cat. Not worry about my arm being torn off. That's coming when Jesus comes. And I'm going to share in that. And that's what he's saying here. Blessing will flow in the coming time of the millennium. Keep your eyes focused on that. Keep your eyes there. Okay? Let's go on. After the great slaughter, Israel will enjoy peace and the abundance of water. Now, what great slaughter? The judgment. After the great slaughter, I think it's specifically referring to Christ coming at his coming when he destroys all, Israel will enjoy peace because there will be peace now and there is something here that would mean something to them. There will be an abundance of water. Now what does that mean? Well, remember, think about where Israel is. It's in the Middle East. And what is a precious commodity there? Water. And they tried to, They the fresh water is really wanted because that's from the streams and so forth, but they would what, dig out cisterns to collect what? Rain water, because water was precious. And so God is saying to them, when the slaughter is over with, you're going to have peace, but you're also going to have lots of water. That would be a sign of blessing. Okay, The Lord will defeat the great army, and joy will feel, fill Jerusalem. Okay, The Lord will defeat the army, and joy will fill Jerusalem. All right, we're going to stop right there. Next, next week we'll continue on. We're going to look at the Egyptian alliance and the destroyers, okay? And we'll spend next week finishing up this second part of our lesson, okay?